abrupt if you're just hopping in with us, but what we've seen so far is that Eli is getting older. Eli, the priest of Israel, is getting older, and his physical ailments parallel his spiritual ailments. I clicked the button by accident. Uh, and where we saw him and in the beginning of chapter 3, he's in his own place, meaning he's not in the temple. He's not even physically able to carry out his duties as a priest. He's in his own place, uh, and he's going blind. And whether that's a light from a lamp or whether that's the commands of God that have been etched in his memory since he's a little boy, uh, he can't really see anymore. He's fading away into the darkness at the same time. We have this young boy, Samuel. He's young and he's healthy, and he's growing, and where is he? He's in the temple of the Lord, standing ready to minister, and the lamp of God is illuminating him. It's shining on his face because it's not yet gone out. The story isn't over yet. God calls Samuel by name. You may know this story, and Samuel wakes up thinking Eli's calling him, and he runs to Eli, and Eli's like, it's not me, buddy. Go back to bed, and that happens a few times, rinse and repeat, until Eli finally realizes that it's God who's speaking to Samuel, and he teaches him. He coaches him on how to hear from the Lord. And what we concluded last week is that God can still speak audibly like he did to Samuel, but he doesn't need to anymore because we're in a different time period. We have the full counsel of God's word. He doesn't need to use prophets to tell his people what he says. We have all of it from Genesis to Revelation in our hands, and God speaks every day. We just have to listen. So when we read the Bible, we just need to realize that the voice that we hear in those words is the very voice of God himself speaking directly to us name, his word for us every day in the scriptures. Um, that was last week, so what happens next? Well, we're taking it scene by scene. After Eli coaches Samuel how to hear from the Lord, Samuel goes back to bed. God calls him again. Samuel gets up, says what Eli tells him to, and what does God say to Samuel? He tells him that he's going to bring on the promised judgment on Eli's house. It's a really fun passage. We're only going to look at five verses today, and on the first read, there may not seem to be much there, uh, but as we double-click on each verse, I'm hoping that we'll learn more about God and ourselves. And uh, the outline for our time together looks like this. Uh, point one is on verse 10, uh, mustard seed solutions. Point two, uh, verse 11, God shows no partiality. And point three, where we'll spend the majority of our time, verses 12 through 14, the God who is. We're going to read our text. We're going to zoom in to see what's happening in the text. And we're going to zoom out to see what it meant for them back then and hopefully what it means for us today. Uh, if you have your Bible, open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. We'll hear the word of the Lord together. And the Lord came and stood, calling us at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house, from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Uh, point one. We start with verse 10. We'll see that God often uses mustard seed solutions to fix mountain-sized problems. Uh, here's verse 10 for you. What's happening here? Well, two times already, Samuel heard his name being called. He thinks it's Eli. He gets up and goes. And two times already, Eli tells him to go back to bed. And how does Samuel respond? He obeys. With the third time, Samuel gets up and runs to Eli. And Eli understands what's happening. He tells Samuel... Go and lie down. If he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So what does Samuel do? He obeys. And we're meant to compare and contrast Samuel's obedience and his urgency 
with Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, with their attitude and their failure and their disobedience. We're meant to kind of see them back to back. Hophni and Phinehas, in chapter 2, we saw, they heard God's commands, and how did they respond? They, tried, they piled sin on top of sin. They heard their father's warnings, and how did they respond? They ignored it completely. And in contrast, Samuel does exactly as he was instructed throughout this whole scene. Every time, point being, we're not saved by works. We sung about it all this morning. We cannot earn our salvation through our good deeds, but our works, our actions, our fruits uh, prove what kind of tree we are. You see what I'm saying? Our actions can't save us, but our actions flow from our heart. It proves where our heart is. And Samuel's a good tree. Eli's sons were not. Uh, And then we'll keep moving. Verse 10 tells us that uh, Samuel went back to bed, and the Lord came and stood, calling him as at other times. Uh, From last week, we know that while God was withholding his word and his visions from a wayward and unrighteous people, now he calls and speaks to Samuel. And God not only speaks to Samuel, the text says that the Lord came and stood before him. Samuel receives both a word and a vision. The people are not getting words and visions. The priests are not getting words and visions, but Samuel does here. The people are groping in the darkness, and the priests who are supposed to be seeing and and lead them in the right way, uh, they're blind too. Yet a boy with a heart that's aimed at God sees and hears him clearly, truly. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, is what Jesus says. So God calls Samuel again. He says, Samuel, Samuel. My question to you is, why does he say his name twice? You know, here's what I do. Whenever I see something in Scripture, they kind of think, that's a little different. It seems strange. It seems a little out of the ordinary. Whenever I see that, I ask myself this question. Does this happen anywhere else in the Bible? And when we search the Bible, lo and behold, it does. There are a few instances where it does. Uh, God calls Abraham by name twice. He calls Jacob by name twice. He calls Moses by name twice. In the New Testament, God calls Saul, Saul of Tarsus, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He calls his name twice. He calls their name twice at crucial moments in their lives and in the lives of his nation and his people. And God calls them by name twice when he commissions them to assume uh, a monumental role in salvation history. So I can't say this for sure, though there are some commentators that agree with me. The fact that God calls Samuel's name twice tells us that this is a crucial moment in Samuel's life and in the life of the nation. God is about to commission this young boy, Samuel, to take up a monumental role in salvation history. He's calling this young boy to become the next prophet for Israel. And I want us to step back and think about that for a second. Uh, when, what is the time frame of the book of 1 Samuel? If you've been on this, this journey, you've heard this four million times. 1 Samuel takes place during the time of the book of Judges, where the people are in these cycles of sin. They've abandoned God. They're a divided nation. Families are disarrayed. There's a lack of leadership. There's sexual immorality everywhere. Crime is up. Their economy is in shambles. They're ripe for oppression from other nations. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, what feels good, their truth. They want to do it. They're doing it. And as we've seen, the priests... They're corrupt, or at the very least, complicit in the corruption. And kind of like our nation today, kind of like the church by and large, uh, they seem broken beyond repair. Their, their problems are so layered, so pervasive, so systemic, and so huge. I'm left asking, what can God do about it? What is he going to do about it? And he gives us his answer. It's a boy in this passage. It's a teenager, an adolescent. He chooses a boy to be his mouthpiece, his reformer, 
and the instrument by which he's going to use to bring his people back to him. And here's the thing with that. When God's people had mountain-sized problems, he often puts forward a mustard seed solution to fix it. And you know what? It works. It's beautiful. It's unbelievable. It's really unexpected. But then if you know God and you look at his pattern throughout the scripture, it's totally tracks. It's kind of how he works. Uh, what's funny, though, is the fact that Samuel himself is God's mustard seed solution to this mountain-sized problem. If anyone should have grasped that this is how God works, it should be Samuel. But even he misses the point here, too. Because years later, Israel's first king, Saul, turns out to be a tyrant, right? And God rejects him. <clears throat> and he tells Samuel to go to Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel. And Samuel tells God that he's terrified to obey. He says, if Saul finds out, he will kill me. But God assures him safety. And so Samuel sheepishly goes. And when he gets to Jesse's house, he encounters uh, Jesse's oldest son. And when he sees him, uh, he's, he's a burly, big, kind of confident, compelling kind of guy. And, and Samuel takes one look at him and he's thinking, here he is. That's God's anointed. Here is the next king of Israel. This guy can fix our problems. And you know what God says to him? 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord doesn't look at the things that people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What I'm trying to say is when the world's problems seem larger than life, God's solutions can kind of feel impotent, small, like they don't have a snowball's chance in hell in working out. But I think that's the point, really. And we see that in the Gospels, too. Um, I was thinking about that this week. I think that's why Jesus calls Peter to walk out to him on a stormy sea and not a calm pond. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I imagine if it was a calm pond and it's like six feet deep and the shore's right there and it's a placid blue sky day and Jesus says to Peter, come walk to me. I think he'd be amazed at first. But then, boy, look. And he's skipping around, and I imagine him yelling out to the other disciples, like, look what I can do! He has a sense of safety. I mean, it's miraculous, to be sure, but there's a, yeah, I mean, whatever. But walking on the water was never the point. It was never the point. The point was, when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, nothing is impossible. That was the point. The takeaway was supposed to be, only God can do that. Instead, Peter lost focus. And he saw the mountain-sized problems all around him, the wave and the winds. And when he lost focus of Jesus, he, he started to sink, right? Similarly, in 1 Samuel 3, Israel had mountain-sized problems, huge systemic problems. And God offers a mustard seed solution to fix it, a boy. And while a young boy might feel like too small a solution for such a pervasive problem, the boy was never the point. The takeaway was always supposed to be, only God can do that. Does that make sense? That's, that's point number one. Um, we're going to move on to point number two and look at what God said to Samuel. And hopefully we'll understand there's no partiality in God. God shows no partiality. Uh, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. God calls Samuel. Samuel says, Speak. I'm listening. And this is what God says to Samuel. Behold. Listen up, Samuel. I'm about to do something, and it's going to shake everyone. It's going to wake everyone up from their sinful slumbers. I'm about to do something, and when people hear about it, their ears will quiver. All right. Eli, hopping from his father, he may be content to allow sin to grow in his own house and in the nation, 
but God isn't. Eli may have been content to be passive, but God is not. God says, I am about to do something. And the phrase about ears tingling, it's an expression that's used a few times in the Bible, and it's always used to talk about the shock that we will fear when we hear, uh, the shock that we'll feel when we hear about God's severe judgments. It will shock us. When people hear about what God's going to do, their ears will shudder, and they will shape up real quick. And uh, if you didn't know this, I have four kids, and kids are kids. I get that. And sometimes they're acting amok at the dinner table, playing with their food, taking forever to eat, and I'm just like ready for it to be done. And they may all be doing it, but usually there's a chief offender. And if I call out that chief offender and I bark out, eat your food, Emma, <laughs> guess what the rest of them do? <laughs> right? And, and that's kind of the same principle here. There's widespread corruption and unrighteousness in the entire nation of Israel. But the priests are the ones who are supposed to know and do better. They are the chief offenders, um, which is why God starts with them. Why? Because when the people see it, that the priest got busted. And what makes the ears of the people tingle, what makes them quiver, is the fact that God shows no partiality. Uh, he doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't give anyone an unfair or uh, preferential treatment. He is just. And I thought about that this week. With human justice, it's such a broken system. It, with the human justice in our world, uh, the rich and influential and powerful, they usually get much lesser or no sentence at all for committing the same crime as someone who is poor and down and out, right? That is the way it goes, uh, but not so with God. Not so with God. Whether great or small, rich or poor, priest or pauper, God doesn't bend his justice for anyone. In fact, the pattern of God's justice versus human justice is kind of the opposite. Like I said, human justice, the rich and powerful and elites usually get lesser or no sentences at all for committing the same crime as everyone else. In God's justice, those who have been given positions of authority, those who are elevated, um, they're held to a stricter, harsher standard than those who are low and down and out. And that's what the scriptures are talking about when it says in Luke 12, 48, everyone to whom much is given, of much will be required. The more you have, the more authority and platform and influence and wealth, the higher the standard of judgment. That's what God is talking about in the scripture when it says, not many of you should be teachers, preachers. Why? Because you know that he who teaches will be judged more strictly. James 3.1. It's not just that God is impartial and he won't bend his justice for everyone. He also sees the situation for what it is and holds people to higher standards because he's given them more influence. Um, and that's why God is pouring out such a severe judgment on Eli and his house. Because the people were likely thinking, I can't say this for sure, this is my guess. If the priests can do it, if the priests are doing this, and they can get away with it, and God's not punishing them, the priests, well, I can do it. Do you know what I mean? If, if they can, then me. And so God tells Samuel, he's about to strike down the priests to send the people a message. And the message is basically this. If even my priests are not spared for my judgment, you think you got better odds? God shows no partiality. And in some ways, that should encourage us. He's fair. He is just. He does right. Um, but in other ways, if we're living in unrepentant sin, it should sober us up real quick. And uh, we should uh, deal with some tingling ears in that situation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And there's only one way to be spared from God's impartial and fair and just judgment. It's repent and believe.
Uh, that's point two. We're going to move to our third and final point, uh, the God who is. We are zooming, but we'll slow down here. Verses 12 through 14, I got it on a slide for you. What's happening in these verses? Well, God had warned Eli that he's on this path. He's on this road of disobedience, and he warned Eli what's waiting for him at the end of that road. And warnings were always meant to be opportunities to make a U-turn. They're always an opportunity to repent, to turn it around and let God rewrite your story. But when warnings are ultimately ignored, warnings become a reality because God always keeps his word. He told Eli, if you don't, this is what's gonna happen. They did not, that's what happens. Uh, so in verse 12, God promises and he tells Eli that he's gonna do exactly what he told tells Samuel that he will do exactly what he told Eli he would do. That's tricky, I unwrapped it, I think. He says, I, I will uh, fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I will declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever. The word punish is the same word. It could be translated judge, and I like that word better. God is about to judge Eli's house, and uh, the word judge there kind of carries with it an ironic meaning. And it's ironic because Eli finds himself in the exact situation that he warned his sons about in chapter 2. When he warns them, he paints the scene of a courtroom. He says, hey, if you sin against one, someone and you've got to go to court, Hey, there's help there. The judge, you know, you only go based on the information he has and you can get a good lawyer and maybe we can bribe people. But if you sin against God, what help do you have then? What help do you have then? Eli warned his sons that God shows no partiality. And when he wields his judgment, he doesn't do so arbitrarily. Um, God's judgment are fair. They're fair, which is why God wants Samuel to tell Eli, this is why you are being judged. And he does that in verse 13. The judgment comes because the iniquity that Eli knew. His sons were blaspheming God. Eli knew that, and God says he did nothing to restrain them. Eli knew what his crooked priest's sons were doing. They were abusing the sacrifice. They were physically abusing God's people. They were sexually abusing the women who came to serve at the temple. Eli knew, and he did nothing to stop them. And I'm sure some of us are thinking, those who've been here to feel the weight of the series. It still feels kind of harsh on Eli though, right? Uh, Eli did say something, albeit maybe too little, too late, but his sons were adults and what could he do? And, and if I'm honest, I feel a little bit of that too. I, I do. Uh, it's easy for me to sympathize with Eli and come up with some excuses for him because he seems like a pretty good guy. I mean, I see his faults clearly, but he seems like he tried, but we need to be careful there. On two fronts, uh, we need to be careful that we're not minimizing Eli's sin when God is condemning him for it, right? We cannot minimize his sin when God is condemning him for it. God's judgments are just even when we feel sympathy and pity for the offenders. And if something feels like a minor infraction to us, but it's a big deal to God, uh, that shows us that our scales are broken and they need to be recalibrated to what God says. If it feels like, hmm, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but God's like, hmm, no way. Well, I got to fix my levels of what the severity of sin, right? That shows me that I'm broken. Uh, that's the first way we need to be careful. Additionally, um, if we have feelings of protest, if, if we feel a little shocked at the severity of God's judgment here, that's the scriptures proving true. That's the feeling of our ears tingling that God spoke of. Um, when the people hear, he says their ears will tremble. And the truth is, we often sympathize deepest and come up with the most excuses for others uh, when we're living in the shadow of their same sins. Like if God struck down a pedophile today, I probably wouldn't bat an eye. But if God struck down a liar in front of me, he lied about his job or how much money he has in the bank, 
I'd have a ton of questions and some concerns. <laughs> well, hold on now, God. And wait a minute. And you see what I'm saying? Uh, we often sympathize deepest and come up with the most excuses for someone when we're kind of living in the shadows of the same sin because we see a little bit of ourselves in that situation. So if Eli's story is just like rung your soul gong and you're feeling that vibration, I want to encourage you to press into that. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what's causing that ache. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you maybe need to make a U-turn in your life. Um, and he will. He will, because I want to remind you that our God is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. He promises and tells us over and over again in the scriptures, he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. He delights to forgive and to restore, Right? And God gave, if you, some of you are jumping right in, it sounds unfair, but God gave Eli decades, 20, 30, 40 years, and multiple warnings to turn the ship around. And only now is he bringing on the final and promised judgment. And we'll see next week that when Eli hears this, do you know what his response is? That's fair. That's what he says. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. He sees this punishment as fair and fitting for him. Um, we'll keep moving, but... By abusing God's people, by abusing God's offering, Eli's worthless sons, who were the priests, they blasphemed God. Eli knew about their iniquity. He didn't stop them. He didn't restrain them. And that's why we hear in verse 14 that God swears that the sin of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by an offering forever. What does that mean? I was hoping y'all could tell me. Uh, does it mean that they can never be forgiven? That because of this sin in Eli's house, for generations and generations, their entire line will go to hell forever. Is that what it means? No. That's not what it means. And I want to explain to you what verse 14 means, but to understand it, we need to understand two things. And here's the first one. Physical consequences in the Bible don't always equal spiritual, eternal consequences. Physical consequences, earthly consequences don't always equal, they do sometimes, but they don't always equal a spiritual, eternal con consequence. So take, for example, Moses. Moses is judged by God because of his sin, and he's told you cannot enter into the promised land, right? That's it. But that physical consequence didn't equal a spiritual, eternal consequence. What I mean is being kept from the promised land didn't equal a one-for-one, one, you're kept out of the promised land, therefore you will be kept out of heaven too, right? Because the transfiguration, who's there? Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Moses went for heaven. Being kept out of the promised land was a physical consequence, an earthly consequence for his sin, not necessarily his spiritual eternal fate. Does that make sense? Does that point resonate? In the same way, in 1 Samuel 3, this isn't sealing the eternal spiritual fate of Eli's entire line and his generation. God is describing the extent and the length of their earthly consequences that they would experience. The point is, even if future generations repent and they see this sin and they understand what it was, it's not that God wouldn't forgive them. It's that he wouldn't relent from enforcing the earthly physical consequences of this action. He won't relent from his promise. It was three things. To disqualify this line from the priesthood. They can never be priests again. To remove them from their high status in society. He's got to bring them low and they will no longer be rich. There's no more prosperity and he's going to make sure that they are poor. That's what God promised. Uh, this generational sin would have generational consequences. And if you're still struggling with that, I was trying to think of a parallel just on an earthly scheme, and it's this. Uh, this is the same reason that Adolf Hitler's great-great-grandson will never be the chancellor of Germany, right? He may be a nice guy, but Adolf Hitler IV is probably not going to rule just because of what his great-great-grandfather did. It's just, that's the way it is. It, it's kind of a similar thing there. It's going to affect 
a long way, and God is not going to relent, just like we heard in our background scripture. He does forgive them. He promises, I won't utterly destroy you, but you're still going to have to experience some of this. That's point one, the first thing we need to understand. Physical doesn't necessarily equate spiritual. The second thing we need to understand is a little weightier. We're doing a lot of theology today, by the way. <laughs> uh, the second is this. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, forgiveness of sins requires something or someone to die in our place, to take our penalty. And without the payment for the wage we've earned, the penalty we've earned, there's no forgiveness. There can't be. So whether it's 5,000 BC or 2022, the wages of sin is death. And um, finite sins against an infinite God merit infinite consequences. I could punch Jay in the face. He might press charges. I'd go to jail for a day. Probably end up with you know, community service. I punch the President of the United States in the face. It's different, right? Same act, both humans. Finite sins against an infinite God merit eternal consequences. That's how that works. But in mercy, God makes a way forward for reconciliation, for restoration. He makes a way forward through sacrifices, something, someone else dying in our place. And on this side of the cross, we know that it's Jesus. Only Jesus, the Lamb of God, can take away the sins of the world. Only Jesus. But have you ever wondered how were the people in the Old Testament forgiven of their sins if Jesus hadn't yet died? Jesus hadn't yet died. How were they forgiven? Well, we know that God instructed his people to make sacrifices and offerings to receive and experience the forgiveness of sins. But we also know from Hebrews, uh, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away the penalty for sin. So what did the sacrifices do? You ever wonder that? Uh, they're a placeholder. Uh, I had a professor in seminary who would say that God forgave the saints of the Old Testament on credit. On credit. And here's what he meant. If I walk into Costco, I see a shirt I like, I take the shirt, I walk up to the register, they ring it up, I gotta pay for it, and they charge my credit card. And then I'm free to go. I mean, they gotta mark my receipt with a red line or whatever, but I'm, I'm free to go, right? But technically, I haven't actually paid for the shirt yet. I, won't have, I will not have paid for the shirt until I pay my credit card statement at the end of the month, right? But even though I haven't yet really paid for the shirt yet, I can still walk out of the store and not be arrested for shoplifting. Why is that? It's because when I paid for it on credit, I signed a deal. I have a legal obligation to pay for it in full in the future. That's why it's not stealing because I will pay for it in the future, right? Similarly, God forgave the sins of the Old Testament saints on credit. Each animal sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins signaled, signaled God's legal obligation to make a payment in full in the future. In the future, he would pay for it. And apart from that future payment, you're just killing animals. The only reason that mattered is because signal God's obligation. He signed the receipt with the blood of an animal that he would shed the blood of the Lamb of God to pay for him. So the sacrifices, they were just placeholders. They were, they were just, until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he paid it all and all to him we owe. He paid it all through his substitutionary death. Jesus paid for all sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins. So now what does that have to do with Eli and 1 Samuel 3? Everything. Everything. The wages of sin is death, and the only provision for the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament were sacrifices made in faith. But we know from this whole scene that Eli and his sons showed contempt for the sacrifices. They kicked at the means of grace that God had given them for provision. And by scorning the offering, 
they rejected God's payment for their sins. That's what happened. And yet they tried to walk out of the temple with forgiveness anyways, and that's not how it works. Uh, once they presumed on God's grace and his kindness by kicking at the offering, they rejected God's payment for them. They rejected his love for them. And by so doing, they rejected the possibility of forgiveness. Without the sacrifice for their sins, there was nothing left for them. They were on their own. There was no other way for them to be saved, and the same is true for us today. There's only one road of salvation. We, too, need a sacrifice, and we know his name is Jesus. Jesus pays it all, or we do. Jesus pays it all, or we do. Uh, and if we spurn, if we kick at him, or we reject him, there's nothing left for us either. So one commentator puts it like this. I know it's a heavy point, but I needed it to get across. It's not that there are sins which are beyond the scope of the cross. There are no sins which are too big for the grace of God in the blood of Christ to cover. The point is this. If you despise the cross of Christ, then you reject the only means of salvation. If you kick Christ's sacrifice, you have nowhere left to turn. That's the point. Um, and God had warned Eli about the path they were on. They ignored it. So now God seals their fate, and that's what's happening in verse 14. Now, my question to you is this. When you look at this snapshot, this picture of God's judgment in 1 Samuel 3, what do you see? It's an important question because what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And just like the picture of my cousin Jonathan, I don't want us to see this image of God and walk away with the wrong idea. So I'm going to very quickly end this sermon uh, with a really deep theology lesson, but I'm going to try to do it quickly and lightly if we could. Uh, so three minutes tops, so buckle up. A few weeks back, Jay, uh, one of our elders, preached to us about the goodness of God, one of God's attributes, right? And he took us to dozens of passages in the scripture where we can clearly see God's goodness on display. It was awesome. So when we step back in this passage in 1 Samuel 3, and we look at this hard word of judgment, what attribute of God is on display in this verse, in these verses? One time. Absolutely. But I set you up for failure because it's a trick question. Um, I want to explain why. In the world of theology, we talk about a doctrine called divine simplicity. If you're around Jeopardy in heaven, divine simplicity. And the doctrine of divine simplicity just means this. God is a simple being. Not simple like plain or stupid. Simple in the classical sense, he's presented without difficulty. Uh, God is a simple being because God is one, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, a hero of Israel, the Lord your God is one. He is one. He's not made up of parts, a touch of kindness, a touch of goodness. He's not the sum total of all of his attributes. Goodness plus mercy plus holiness plus power equals God. He's not all of those things added together and then he's God. Divine simplicity means this. All that is in God is God. As human beings, we have attributes, and our attributes can grow or shrink, and then we're usually described by those attributes, right? Like, she's a really angry woman. He's a really kind man, and that might change next week. Maybe she becomes kind and he becomes angry. Our attributes can grow and shrink. They can ebb and flow, and our attributes are constantly in tension. Do I show little Johnny mercy for stealing the cookie? Or do I discipline him and show him harshness? Which would be better for him? I'm torn. I don't know. Right? Human experience. But God doesn't have attributes. He doesn't possess attributes as if they're distinct from who he is. God is his attributes. He is his attributes. I know this is highfalutin, but stay with me. Because God is his attributes, 
His attributes don't ebb and flow. They don't grow and shrink. They're never in tension with each other. His holiness and his love, no problem. His omnipresence and his omniscience, never at war. He just is. Whatever our one God does, because he is one, he does with all of himself and therefore all of his attributes. So with that in mind, when we step back and look at God's hard words in 1 Samuel 3, what attribute of God is on display here? The doctrine of divine simplicity is what makes this a trick question because the answer is all of them. It's why I called this last point the God who is dot, dot, dot. It's why he tells Moses, I am. I am what? He cannot be confined and described and contained by any aspect of his being because he doesn't have aspects. He just is. All of God's attributes are on display here in 1 Samuel 3, though admittedly some may be more pronounced, more visible than others, but I want to quickly show you what I mean. In this passage, we can see God's omnipotence. God is all-powerful, omnipotence. Those with power, the priests, sinned against the powerless, but God with all power will avenge and make it right. Verse 12, I am about to do something, and when I do, all the people are going to shudder. God has all power. We can see that in this passage. We can see God's omniscience. God is all-knowing. In verse 13, God knows what Eli knew. He knows the situation. He knows the secret things of the heart. He knows the things that happen in the darkness. Uh, we know that. We can see God's omniscience. We can see God's omnipresence. God is everywhere. God was there in the tent of meeting, speaking, calling Samuel, even before he came and stood before Samuel. He is everywhere. We can see God's omnipresence. We can see God's immutability. God never changes. This scene in 1 Samuel 3 is really not that unique to Scripture. I could show you 30 different instances in the Bible where you see God commanding something, God being patient with the people, God warning them what will happen if they don't do it, God disciplining them when they don't, and God restoring them and showing grace and mercy after. That happens over and over again. This is exactly what we can expect from God. You know why? Because God never changes. He's immutable. We can see God's self-sufficiency. God needs nothing. That's why he could say, I am about to do. I am. Eli didn't. God's not helpless. He'll do it himself. God is self-sufficient. We can see God's patience. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God waited for Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, for years and years to turn it around. God waited for Eli to do something about it for years and years. God warned Eli what would happen if he didn't do something about it, and he waited with him years and years. And how many years has it been between that and now Samuel getting this word to tell to Eli? We have no idea. What we do know is God is so patient and so slow to anger. We can see God's goodness on display. God is kind and full of mercy. He was patient with Eli and his rebellious sons. His goodness is on display when he's raising Samuel up to replace them. And at the end of this chapter, he's restoring the people's hope and their trust in him and his ways. That's his goodness on display. We can see his holiness on his display. He's the father of light in whom there is no variation. God hates sin, and he will deal with it accordingly. We can see God's justice. He's right and perfect in all that he does. He will not clear the guilty. He will punish all iniquity, and he shows no partiality, so he starts with his own. He doesn't bend justice for them. We can see God's wisdom. He possesses and... Uh, he possesses perfect, unchanging wisdom, and he always acts accordingly. When we read this whole scene, uh, some might feel that God was unjust to be patient with Eli and his sons. I've said that. How many people got abused? How many faiths got ruined by their actions? Uh, others might feel that God is unjust for being so harsh in his judgment with them. But God is wisdom, and all that he does is 
wise. And that's through his wisdom, he executes his perfect will. We can see God's faithfulness. He always keeps his promises for good or ill. He always does exactly what he said he would do. And I can keep going and going about his love and his mercy and his nobility and his glory and his grace. We could keep going and going. Do you know why? Because God is a simple being. He is who he said he is, and he is the God who is. He cannot be confined or contained by any aspect of his being because he doesn't have aspects. He just is God. Um, he doesn't act from parts of himself because he doesn't have parts. He is one. And because God is one, his attributes are never in tension with each other, ever. All that God does comes from all who God is. And when God acts, he acts with all of himself, all of his attributes. That's a deep theology lesson. You're welcome. Or I'm sorry, depending on how you heard it. That being said, it's not wrong to focus on one attribute at a time. It's not wrong to look at God's goodness or his power. It's not wrong. But it is wrong to assume that God is more X than he is Y. He's more holy than he is loving. That is wrong. Um, and it is wrong to assume that God's wrath in one passage somehow undermines his love in the same passage or based on another passage. Well, this and that. His wrath and his love are never at odds. They're never in tension. Because God is. All of him. He is. God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't bend his justice for anyone. And the penalty for the crime must be met. But in love, and to satisfy his justice and his holiness, he offers to pay the penalty for us. Even passages about God's judgment have the backdrop of his love and his pronouncement of forgiveness and his provision for forgiveness. Um, but if we reject the payment, if we kick at his love, then we're on our own, is what we see in this passage. In short, Samuel got a full picture of God in this short scene, and, uh, and it changed him forever. And I'm hoping that we also saw a full picture of God, if I did my job decently, and that we would also be changed too. Let's pray.